2: tonight's panel on uh, Russia's pivot to China in the context of of burning Ukraine. Thank you all for joining us on this early Friday evening. We have three experts who are going to speak on various aspects of this topic, who have come from as far as New Jersey and as close as uh, the University of Washington. I'm going to introduce the speakers in turn. and after everybody has spoken, then we'll open things up for uh, questions and answers. And we'd also uh, love to hear what uh, you all have to say. Uh, before we start, I want to thank uh, Gregory Strax from the Jacksonville PhD program, who was the initiator and organizer of this program. Uh, and Phil Lyon and Val Petrova, who uh, worked to set everything up here. So our first speaker is Professor... Judith Thornton, who's a professor of economics here at the University of Washington. She's a member of the International Advisory Board for uh, the Economics, Education, and Research Consortium in Russia of uh, the Eurasian Foundation. Her research interest is the economic of transition economies. She's currently working on strategies of Western businesses in Russia and determinants of, tax, of the tax effort in Russia's regions. Uh, she published a book in 2002 called Russia's Far East, A Region at Risk which comprehensively assesses the relationships among a variety of factors in Russia's Far East, including the economic collapse in the region, Russia's ability to manage potential areas of conflict, and the shifting balance of power in Asia. So first, uh, let's welcome Professor Judy Fortin. Okay, so um, Greg called
1: me after my classes yesterday and said, can you stand up and be Matt Lima? And I yeah. said, no. <laughs> um, but what I, what I can do today is raise some of the questions that we economists and social scientists are asking about you know, where is Russia going you know, in this Vladimir Putin era. Um, and for me, the issue relating to Russia's um, pivot to Asia is can they do it? Um, and I'm, I'm uh, a skeptic on that. And I'll, I'll make some cases for why it's going to be darn hard for Russia to adjust. Um, OK, what, what can Russia attempt to do about the growing gap between their, between their wonderful potential, very um, highly educated, talented people, rich resources, vast landmass? Um, and what they're actually achieving. Um, and the Russian Far East, in some sense, is an interesting case, both because it's so far from Moscow, but in a way it's a it, it um, typifies the problems that many, many regions of Russia that are distant from Moscow are facing today. Um, Asian Russia is important because of its enormous size, its resource wealth, its strategic location in Northeast Asia, um, its proximity, its nearness to all of the rapidly developing countries of the Asia-Pacific, China, South Korea. Um, And uh, for me, it serves as a barometer of the storm winds that are ahead for the Russian federal government in general. Russia's got really hard times ahead. And I don't see any evidence that the Russian central government at the power vertical appears to understand what the dilemmas they're facing, or appears to have the capacity to address these issues. Um, so in that sense, I guess I'm coming with some questions, and, and with some questions that, that many people, many economists especially, are asking. Is there a pivot to Asia? On the part of Russia? Well, yes and no. Russia's top export destinations today, I just looked this up in Goscom stock Um, the Netherlands 9%, China 8%, Germany 6.5%, Ukraine 5.7% receiving of the share of Russian exports. Netherlands, obviously, that's all offshore, you know, that's offshore Russian subsidiaries. Russia's main import sources, China 15%, Germany 14%, Ukraine 5%, Belarus 4.6%. So you see that China is right up there, um, second largest destination for Russian exports, first um, source of, of supply to Russia. So let's turn to, um, is there a pivot to Asia? Yes, You know, obviously China has gotten to be a very big player in this. Um, China is Russia's largest trading partner um, in terms of the value of their exports, the value of their imports. There's no other single country, including Germany, that can equal China's exports. Um, If we look at the Chinese table that I've just put up in front of you, um, Russia's exports to China are something like 10 times larger than Russia's exports to Japan or South Korea. So clearly, China has become a very big partner for Russia, the source of many of their consumer goods and food products. However, Russia's Russia has not diversified. Russia's main exports are still crude oil, petroleum products, let's look at those. Um, crude oil, petroleum products, um, petroleum gas, coal, a little bit of iron. Um, Russia's top imports are are not high-tech, um, especially not since they're they're um, embargoed and not able to get energy equipment. But their top imports are cars, 7%. Pharmaceuticals, 15%. Parts for cars. Computers, 2%. Trucks, 1% percent. So Russia's um, Russia still, with the Nigeria of Eurasia, you know, they're still a major energy exporter without much else um, on their plate. Um, Russian involvement with China is growing, you know, and and what we see is that Russian agreements with China, all the promises that they make, are about <coughs> 20 times larger than what's actually delivered. Mm-hmm. For the first time now, we're beginning to see actual. Russian deliveries of oil to China via the <coughs> um, ESPO, the Eastern si- si- Siberian um, Oil Pipeline, which opened up in 2009. And its second phase will, will take oil all the way to the coast. Um, crude oil supplies to China via the ESPO pipeline began a couple of years ago, and they're growing steadily. According to the agreement between Rosneft and and um, the Chinese um, state-owned enterprises, um, Rosneft promises to supply 15 million tons of oil to China every year for the next 20 years. And Transneft <laughs> expects to be operating at a capacity of 30 million metric tons a year, or 600,000 barrels a day. I mean, these are these are very large amounts for Russia. They're very small amounts, I should say, for China. Russia, um, China, with its huge demand for energy and its access to energy from all over the Pacific and, and now from Central Asia, um, Russian, the Russian role in delivering energy to China is, is still below 10%. I think Russia is not a big deal in that. Nevertheless, Russia and China are announcing ambitious plans to make this grow as fast as possible. Um, Rosneft promises, Rosneft, by the way, um, is, has, is holding a huge $12 billion debt right now. And China is exactly need some of that $3 trillion, of U, $3 trillion US dollars that China has in their foreign exchange accounts to help them fund their own debts. <clears throat> so the state-owned Rosneft is promising to triple their supplies to China. Um, and China offered, has paid Rosneft $30 billion in loans, which they're going to, um, they plan to use to expand their deliveries of energy to China. But Rosneft promises the China National Petroleum Corporation a share in eight different upstream projects in Siberia. And in May, of course, we all read in the um, New York Times or the Financial Times that China offered um, Russia a $400 billion credit you know, for deliveries of 38 billion cubic meters of gas, of gas a year. And as you know, China being on currently a coal economy is desperate to change from um, highly polluted coal. You know, my, my graduate students who are working in Beijing <clears throat> say they, you know, they can't work because the pollution is so serious. Um, so in that sense, China badly needs the natural gas from all of the Pacific Asia. Um, let's look at, as you see here, the expanded oil pipeline network. Um, the amazing thing about what you see here is the immense cost of it. None of, this, none of these pipelines to East Asia um, have a rate of return higher than 1% on their capital. 55 billion you know, for this expanded oil pipeline network. Now the cost per kilometer is three times higher than what it costs you know, a Canadian pipeline builder to build the same thing in, in the middle of Alberta. And perhaps two, you know, two-thirds of that is actually corruption. one doesn't know. Um, so, but these are not these these are very ambitious plans, but they are not they don't pencil out for an investor. These are not plans that could easily attract foreign develop foreign um, foreign investment, you know, on a profit motivated basis. Um so China's playing a huge role. <clears throat> I don't have slides here about Russian military expansion with sales to China. Um, the, main, the main important change we've seen is that Russia is, is has suddenly decided, because it needs money so badly, um, to sell China a lot of hardware, military hardware, that it's never sold before. There's Su-35s, fighters, and, and S-400 um, rockets, and so forth. So in that sense, there's a huge increase at a time when the world is spending less on military expenditures, <clears throat> there's been a huge increase in Russian military production and in Russian military sales. Um, that's you know, one area where Russian-Chinese um, activities are definitely expanding very rapidly. Um, there are other lots of activities. Um, the Russian fishing fleet um, catches about $2 billion in, of fish every year. and not all of that, they, they sell it to Japan. Not all of it is reported, but they, they mostly sell it to Japan or to Korea. Um, China is the main processor of Russian timber. Um, and Russia attempted to, to create incentives so that firms would invest in the Russian Far Eastern process there. Um, but it didn't work. And with the high export taxes, all that happened is that smuggling. And the smuggling of roundwood from the Russian forest to you know, to the Chinese timber processing firms, <clears throat> became 45% of all Russian exports, of Russian timber exports. So, in that sense, there's a huge trade between Russia and, and China in logging and processing of timber, and, and much of it is. is and as you can see from Russian timber harvest exports to China, including illegal harvest, here are estimates of the share of that harvest that are actually illegal. Um, one of my former graduate students just visited wood processing, where <clears throat> timber is just rolling in on the railroads steadily. You know, every, every three or four hours, another timber train comes in. and. John has sent me photographs of many, many, many wood processing firms in China that are making <clears throat> plywood, all kinds of forest <coughs> products. Um, as you can see here, just a huge um, role of timber processing. But almost no investment. All of these activities I've described require huge amounts of capital investment. Pipelines, um, liquefied natural gas plants, gotcha. Liquefied natural gas plants, um, everything that that could be happening, that Russia could be contributing to the Pacific in includes huge amounts of capital investment. And that's not happening. That's just simply not happening. And the reason, of course, is the power vertical, the Russian systema. You know, the expectation that Shell was expropriated, that most of the multinational, the foreign multinationals in energy, have been expropriated. And so, if we look at Russian government, you know, if we look at total investment in the whole Far East um, in 2011, it was less than less than a billion dollars. It it's just very. Very minuscule compared with Russia. What Russia would mean um, now? All of this means that the Russian Far East is, by, is not thriving. The, the Russian Far East population has fallen 23 percent. Um, about more than half of that in the decade. As you can see, the Russian Federation population has declined. But Look down here at Sakhalin. You know, even the oil exporters. Look at Kamchatka. All of these, all of these regions, the population is disappearing. Now it should disappear. the, the U.S. is Alaska is producing an, an amount of of natural resource products as large as the Russian Far East with only 600 million people, 600,000 people, and and Russian. Far East and Transbaikal has six million, so in that sense, it, it, it's very natural for the for the people to be to be leaving the region. Um, but anyway, we see so we see huge evidence of regional, growing regional problems. I think my tables here's percent unemployment by age. Look at unemployment of people in their twenties; it's up at 50 percent unemployed in their thirties down here at 30%. So this is a region that's in big, big trouble. Um, all right, let's just turn then to the last question. In the in the face of Ukraine, you know, what is the meaning of all of this for Russia given um, the, what is the relevance of Ukraine to all of this? Nothing, almost not at all. The main relevance of Ukraine. Is not to Russia. The main relevance of Ukraine is to China. You know, and China observes that Western Europe and the U.S. have not re- have responded to Russian incursions into Ukraine with very, very weak sanctions, and thus China is taking unilateral actions to challenge all the existing rules of the law of the sea, the rules for freedom of the seas, flight across the Pacific. Um, and so, in that sense, you know, the main. Decision maker that's learning from Ukraine is China. Um, and in 2009, they began by <clears throat> publishing a map of the South China Sea that claims 80% of the maritime area. Um, and uh, their maps dispute maritime borders. You know, they're crosswise on the Senkaku Islands with Japan, the Parasilas with Vietnam, the Spratties with Philippines, Vietnam, and Malaysia. Um, So um, what what should the US do finally in in this um, dismal situation where Russia is going to have a very, very hard time finding alternative partners for trade? Um, Well, the main main thing the the US needs to do is obviously to support the Trans-Pacific Partnership, is to try to um, support the institutions that are generating both generating foreign trade, foreign investment, harmonization of regulations in that sense, <clears throat> supporting all of the institutions that will generate markets. And is Russia going to be able to take advantage of that? Not in the short run, you know, but in the long run, um, with a talented, talented population. you know, After Putin, um, Russia will probably be able to take advantage of the, the world market.
2: Now we're going to move even more toward China. Our second speaker is Liz Wishnick, who is an associate professor of political science at Montclair State University, and she's also the coordinator of the Asian Studies undergraduate minor. Since 2002, she's been a senior research scholar at the Weatherhead Institute, East Asia Institute, at Columbia University. Professor Wishnick's research focuses on Chinese foreign policy and non-traditional security. Her current book project, China's Risk, Oil, Water, Food, and Regional Security, is forthcoming from Columbia University Press in 2016. It addresses security and foreign policy consequences for the Asia Pacific region for oil, water, and food risks from China. Professor Wishnick also writes about great power relations in East Asia and is working on several articles about contemporary Sino-Russia relations as well as a policy study on China's interests and goals in the Arctic for the Strategic Studies Institute of the U.S. Army War College. So please join me in welcoming Professor Lisbuste.
0: Thank you, Scott, and I'd like to thank Greg Strax for organizing my visit here and the Ellison Center as well for hosting this evening. Uh, so impressed that such a great crowd has come on a Friday night to hear us <laughs> talk about various pivots. Uh, so I'm going to be talking mostly about the China side of, of uh, this picture, looking at how China views the US rebalancing and the Russia Russian pivot to Asia. But I'll also throw in my two cents about Russia's Asia pivot as well. So China has been trying to understand what, what lies behind the US pivot strategy was originally called the pivot strategies, and later became the rebalancing strategy in Asia, and what that means for Chinese interests in the region. And at the same time as China's been trying to decide what to do about the United States policy in Asia, Russia has been elaborating on its own pivot strategy. And um, my paper looks at what this coincidence of pivots means for China, does the Russian pivot help relieve Chinese feelings of pressures from the U.S. rebalancing policy, or does it complicating, uh, complicating factor for China? And so I'm a political scientist, and I fo- I'm focusing in my research on Sino-Russian relations, on identities and how uh, the evolution of Chinese and Russian identities brings the two of them together. And so, um, also looking at how uh, China China understands uh, the United States presence in Asia um, as some kind of other factor that China is trying to reckon with, and so I find in my research that that Russia's Asia pivot in some ways um, complicates. Complicates the agenda for China because Russian and Chinese interests in the region are not quite identical. But on the other hand, uh, Russia's uh, closer ties with China provide some some support for China at the time when it feels pressure from from the United States. And so Judy told us about how China is exerting itself more and more in the Asian region. But from the Chinese perspective, it's the United States is pr- pressuring China. Um, and so Chinese observers see a value on the Sino-Russian relationship encountering what they see as as a pattern of increased US pressure. And the, I think the value in that they see in the partnership offsets some of the, the differences they have with Russia. So how does how do Chinese Observers understand the U.S. rebalancing policy, and um, so Chinese and American scholars have been wrestling with this question. And um, I've found some some differing accounts of the other perspectives on this. So, Michael Swain wrote an interesting report in which he looked at authoritative and non-authoritative views in Chinese. Uh, publications and what they said about the U.S. rebalancing policy and he found that Chinese officials (coughs) largely tried to to have a a balanced understanding seeing some signs of seeing pressure but also seeing the United States leaving the door open to engaging China. Non-authoritative or quasi-authoritative views which would be scholars or policy experts who publish in uh, the the media or academic journals, as opposed to statements by policymakers, these views tend to be more critical. And so he cautions that it really depends on what you're reading, what your understanding of Chinese reactions to the pivot policy is. And it's true that Chinese policymakers may have a more critical view of the US policy than they're willing to, to state openly, at least, for the time being. Um, but some Chinese observers have taken a more uh, critical point of view. So Zhu Feng, who is a prominent scholar at, at, at Beijing University, talks about different schools of thought among Chinese experts on U.S.-China relations, and he says that the Nationalists. Uh, realist positions tend to dominate, so he sees a more uniformly critical viewpoint um, being expressed. Um, and so, these are some viewpoints that come come across in the the Chinese materials that I've been reading about the U.S. pivot. And um, first of all, what is the the U.S. rebalancing policy? does what does it mean and so there's an understanding that the united states has always been a player in asia and it's just a readjustment of policy uh, away from uh, an intense focus on the middle east although from a u.s perspective we still seem to have an awfully intense focus on the middle east these days um so i think that chinese experts understand that the united states is a has is a bicoastal power and, and has some natural interest in the region. But the, the point that concerns Chinese observers most is how does this relate to China's position in the region? Is it an attempt to contain China's rise and in legitimate interests or not? Um, will conflict result from this policy of rebalancing? Um, you know, those who are more balanced urge Chinese leaders to take the long view and understand that time is chi- on China's side as long as it concentrates on its own peaceful development. Um, one interesting view was by Wang Jisi, who is another uh, famous scholar at, at Beijing University, who argues that China should, should rebalance its own Asia policy and not focus so much on East Asia, but look more at Western Asia and march west. Uh, meaning of greater focus on South Asia and Central Asia. And so this fits into some of the new rhetoric coming out of China about new Silk Roads that I'll talk about in a few moments. So others who are more critical see an attempt in the rebalancing policy to encircle China and to to, uh, try to prevent China's rise. So you do see a range of statements about this rebalancing policy. And so partly in response to, uh, to the U.S. pivot, China has been outlining its own Asian dream. You may have heard of the Chinese dream that the new Chinese leadership has been outlining, a vision for Chinese society <coughs> and development. Well, in the last year, in, in May 2014, a Conference on Confidence Building in Asia, and then at the APEC meeting in November, Chinese leaders have been talking about the Asia-Pacific dream for China, and that is to engage with a variety of China's neighbors. So this fits into what China calls its zhou uh, bian wai jiao, which is a neighborhood policy. Used to be called a periphery policy, but then that sounded very sinocentric. If everyone else was on the periphery and China's in the middle, so they call it the neighborhood policy. China's trying to to dispel concerns about Chinese power in the region by by trying to argue that it's a good neighbor, and so it constructed some new agendas for uh, infrastructure and. Uh, trade relations with neighboring states. And so there's a new Silk Road economic belt that's supposed to connect China to the west with Central Asia, and then the new Maritime Silk Road in blue there that uh, is going to connect China with Southeast Asia, South Asia, um, going up through Egypt and through to Europe there. Um, so, this is what uh, this is what uh, Wang Jisa meant by marching west. That it's not just the South China Sea that interests, and China is also what comes west in Asia. So, Central Asia and South Asia, and so notice Sri Lanka is there. Um, and so, China's been trying to expand its ports of call in a variety of regions. China has expanded its, its participation in anti-piracy missions in the Gulf of Aden. And this reflects China's growing energy interests in Africa, for example, and efforts to expand ties with a variety of South Asian states. So the question is, where does Russia fit into these plans? The, uh, Russia in this map is connected through the the energy pipelines that you mentioned earlier. So is Russia part of this new vision of the Asia Pacific dream, or is it a competitor to this dream? So that's the question. And my colleague, uh, Gaia Christofferson, has been studying this question, and she noted that that, um, at first, Chinese maps of the new Silk Road economic belt didn't really, they kind of circumvented Russia. And now the maps include Russia. And so I think there was some feedback from the Russian side that Central Asia is our neighborhood and we don't like it that you're focusing your new belt there. And so the Chinese were trying to (laughs) assure the, the, the Russians that this was a cooperative venture that they understand that politically, Central Asia is a Russian sphere of influence, and they understand the Eurasian uh, Economic Union as a as a key project in this piece. Uh, China is proposing new infrastructure and trade um, arrangements that would dovetail with what Russia has in mind. And so here's another map uh, that shows how how these these roads can go through Russia and across, not necessarily just around it. So we'll see what, how exactly these new strategies are implemented. But this leads to the question, what does China think about the Russia's Asia pivot? If the US-Asia pivot is seen as somehow possibly threatening, or at least an intrusion by a Western state in an Asian region, what does this mean in terms of Chinese views of Russia. Um, and so, when I've also looked at Russia's Asia pivot more in terms of Russia's identity as an Asian state. And um, in in other work I argue that Russia has to have an Asian vector or an Asian angle to really be a global power. Um, and uh, Dmitry Trenin argued recently that uh, without Asia, without its Asian regions, its territories located on Asia, uh, Russia would just be Moscovy and not, not a great power at all. Okay, so this shows you the map with two-thirds of Russia on the Asian continent. And here's a marker um, in on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, where you look out the window and you can see one side is Asia and the other side is Russia. And so Russians have been wrestling with this in Europe. Russians have been wrestling with this question for centuries. What does it mean that Russia is this bicontinental continental state? Um, so it's true that Russia, the, Russian, the Russian Far East has had a difficult time integrating in Asia. Um, The Valdai Club published a study recently about this, and they said that the integration of the Russian Far East in Asia is a meta project. Um, And I think that's true, that it's not even its implementation that's so important as the idea of of, of Russia's belonging in Asia. And China's an important part of this, as we heard. But it's not just China. Russia has been engaging with a wide range of states in Asia, including Vietnam, India, and even some unusual partners, like Burma, uh, the Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore. Um, So I think Russia's Asian vision goes beyond China. And I think also that uh, the partnership with China also goes beyond economics. And we often focus on that piece, but for China, I think what's also important is that, is that the two countries share certain norms and understandings of, of um, international politics. And they both feel pressured by the United States. And I think what China takes home from Ukraine is that Western interference in other countries is dangerous, and they, they, they're concerned about... Uh, their own political stability and are taking great pains to restrict foreign influences and in academia and um, the media, etc. And I also think that there's a kind of interdependence that's occurring where we tend to focus on Russia's dependence on Chinese loans, but China is also vulnerable because of its, its integration in commodities markets and its great dependence on resource imports. So in terms of China's understanding of, of Russia's Asia pivot, um, Chinese are, are, are trying to understand, is it a good thing for China that Russia's more involved in Asia? And, and what is Russia's uh, position on the US rebalancing in Asia? And I tend they, um, so I think, they believe that uh, Russia has certain advantages in terms of being a transit country for Asia, um, and that China and Russia can cooperate in many ways in Asia. Um, so where the Chinese have some concerns is that, is in the, to the extent that Russia is not really siding exclusively with China on the issue of the US rebalancing. So sometimes Russia acts in a neutral way and doesn't necessarily take China's part. So on South China Sea issues, on East China Sea issues, Russia has stayed out of the fray. Um, and in other cases, China has seen Russia become friendlier with countries that with which it's at odds, like Vietnam for example, and Japan until recently. Um, but I think China, by and large, believes that Russia's engagement in Asia is at least not a negative for China and largely positive. So um, just to conclude here, I think that China, China believes that Russia's involvement and increased interest in Asia is on the whole positive and that while they might have some different interests on particular questions these differences are not so great or not so significant and I think also China understands that Russia is really a European state more focused on the Eurasian Union than on Asia and unlikely to challenge China and that it's its eastern regions are relatively weak. And so Russia itself is not going to challenge China. And even though they might have different um, different policy interests vis-a-vis Vietnam or India or some other countries, I think that what Chinese observers largely conclude that what they share is more important uh, than where they differ. And what they share is certain norms of behavior, a certain sense of pressure from the United States. And so I think that even though they would like, perhaps, a greater sense of support from Russia in response to US pressures, I think the, the Sino-Russian partnership itself is a send, it provides some support for Chinese positions. So I'm going to stop there.
2: Much. Uh, And now for another angle on the question, we're going to hear from Mikhail Alexeyev, who got his PhD here in 1996. Today he's a professor of political science at San Diego State University. His publications focus on threat assessment in interstate and internal wars, ethnic relations, and anti migrant hostility in post Soviet Russia. He's the author of several books, including Immigration Phobia and the Security Dilemma Russia, Europe, and the United States, and Without Warning, Threat Assessment, Intelligence, and Global Struggle. He's also the editor of a Federation Imperiled: Center Periphery Conflict in Post-Soviet Russia. He's written numerous editorial pieces on Soviet and post-Soviet affairs that have appeared in the New York Times, Newsweek, Toronto Globe and Mail, USA Today, and the Seattle Times. And he's an avid surfer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Professor
3: Alexey. Thank you Scott. Okay, guys, uh, you know, uh, for all the uh, talk about economic cooperation and everything, it's also important to remember that Russia and China had uh, uh, protracted territorial disputes in the Russian Far East going back to the uh, mid-1800s. In some ways, uh, from the Chinese standpoint, the southern and the most populous parts of the Russian Far East are, like Crimea, in many ways, for the Russian nationalists, you know, they are featured on many Chinese maps under the title The History of the Tsarist Russia Ripping Away Traditional Chinese Territories. Uh, and lots of maps like that are in circulation produced by the Ministry of Education of China. Uh, and uh, as recently as 1969, 1970, Russia and China fought uh, some very vicious bloody military conflicts on the borders, uh, contesting territory. Uh, When the Soviet Union collapsed and when more than 25 years ago complete closure uh, of the uh, uh, Sino-Russian border ended, the closure, which by the way, um, even back uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, our very stern uh, professor of the Soviet Communist Party history was telling us that he dug up in the archives the number that between 1962 and 1982, the cost of protecting the uh, uh, Russian-Chinese border cost the Soviet Union 2.5 times more than the cost of all the losses it suffered in World War II. And so um, this is of course a huge issue. The border was reopened. Um, in the early 90s uh, after uh, the Soviet Union collapse, which resulted in Chinese migration, but in many ways the potential of the region and the interaction between Russia and China has not been used because there are a lot of issues related to territory uh, uh, and migration concerns. After all, the Russian Far East is a territory uh, from Lake Baikal to the Pacific, about 36% of Russia's uh, territory, uh, where you only have 6.75 million people, as opposed to over 100 million people in just three provinces of China across the border. So, with this context, uh, I studied uh, Russian perceptions of Chinese <coughs> migration uh, in the Russian Far East for many years. Uh, and uh, um, one, um, <clears throat> I'm going to give you a summary of some opinion survey results on the issue. The trend is uh, that the threat perception has been declining since 2000. So in 2000 there was actually talk about the Russian Far East that could become like Balkans with Chinese migrants and ethnic tensions. And and these kinds of perceptions uh, have been reduced significantly. But yet also there are some factors And some of them, in light of the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, uh, may even come up uh, in unexpected ways uh, again and affect uh, these perceptions uh, in the region. So let me walk you through some of the findings. Um, The findings are based on opinion surveys uh, I commissioned uh, first with the Institute of uh, ethnography of the peoples of the Russian Far East, uh, and then the Delivada Center, and then Romir Agency. Uh, So we have the data for 2000, 2005, and 2013. And each of them asked identically worded questions on some of the key issues related to these themes. Uh, These are the measures uh, related to threat perception. Uh, Do the Chinese believe Primorsky is Chinese territory historically? Uh, Do they believe it should become part of China? That is, do they want to try to take it away? And um, may Primorsky-Krai become part of China, kind of uh, involuntarily, so to speak, through migration, gradually. So on all of these issues, you see gradual and significant decline uh, in perceived threat. So the Russians in the Far East are much less uh, (coughs) scared uh, by migration uh, of the Chinese, although uh, the latent fears uh, that the Chinese still see it as their territory is still pretty strong, still at 60% uh, in uh, 2000, 2013. The survey is, by the way, from Primorsky Krai, the maritime territory, which is the largest, uh, most populous uh, part uh, of the Russian Far East. Um, however, when we try to see what explains these shifts, uh, there is an interesting mixed bag. Uh, some of the predictors, like for example, the perception of the balance of military power, that is, the, the views that compare the strength of Russia with the strength of China, uh, don't really dovetail. In fact, they go the other way. Uh, over time, you see that uh, the Russians believe China is stronger now and is getting stronger, will get stronger than Russia in 10 years militarily. So from that perspective, we should see the threat perception of migration increase, but it's decreasing. Um, this is the map showing uh, the, um, uh, where the battles took place, uh, some of the biggest battles over of, of Damansky and the uh, island between Russia and China. The uh, uh, and again, on this, we, we asked the question, uh, how likely do you think is the repetition of these clashes today? Uh, and in 2035% of respondents said they were likely, in 2005-19 said they were likely, but in 2013, 38% again said they were likely, interestingly enough. So when, when the border demarcation treaties were going on, it seemed like relations were improving and the threat Subsided, but, but then the threat increased, and you even have these kinds of you know uh, uh, attacks uh, on Putin and Medvedev. They did not allow the Chinese to cross the border in 1969, but now Putin and Medvedev did it. Uh, we gave them two islands. They gave them two islands, and what did you do for China? this <laughs> kind of uh, logosphere uh going on now from the economic standpoint also you would think that if threat perception declined maybe this is because uh, people feel that there's uh, more equitable economic exchange across the border they're getting more benefits from trade with China no they continue to see the Chinese as getting more unilateral benefits from border trade than the Russians <laughs> again, Comparison across groups or across states does not dovetail with threat perception. Um, but where we do find some relationship, and this is my bottom line, that valuations of in-group strength shape migration attitudes more significantly than comparisons across groups or nations. And in that particular case, it's not just any group, but it's the state institutions. The perceptions of state strengths uh, so one of the measures of that is the sense of isolation from Moscow question. You can see how it stayed pretty high in 2000, 2005, and it significantly declined uh, in 2013. Another explanation could be uh, the rise of family income. Uh, the more, the greater security, again, to a large extent associated with strength because The big part of economic problems in the 90s when those threats emerged was that, well, the state didn't pay salaries to the teachers, they didn't pay the pensions, you know, they uh, were, in essence, abandoning their citizens. Uh, And that sense increased uh, that the state is with the people there, that it's providing those benefits. Interestingly, too, uh, there has also um, been a larger number of people who actually traveled to China. Uh, The extent of cross-border human exchange has definitely increased. In 2000, 80% of respondents said they never visited China, which then surprised me. But then we saw saw a gradual uh, decline uh, in this. Now, interestingly enough, when we did regression analysis, uh, then uh, you only see isolation from Moscow as a significant predictor throughout. The other ones, don't um, relate these income assessments, family income, and travel to China. Travel to China actually related to threat perception in an interesting way. The more people traveled to China, the more threat they felt. (laughs) (laughs) That would explain that uh, the rise, you know, but again, that should have explained the rise in threat perception, the threat perception decline. However, now, uh, some lessons from 2014. In 2014, I was fortunate to conduct another survey but uh, that was not focused on the Russian Far East. It was a na- nationwide survey. But, but there is a pattern in the nationwide survey that, that held in the Russian Far East as well in previous years. And this was the question that, that most significantly related to threat perception and the uh, uh, Extreme xenophobia, exclusionist feelings, you know, do you want to deport all migrants from Russia, et cetera, et cetera. The question was, do you believe ethnic diversity of the population strengthens or weakens Russia? Interestingly enough, the number of people who believe that the ethnic diversity of the population weakens Russia declined. That's the most significant change over these years. And that is what you can call the vulnerability line that would cue threat assessment, so this is where we see the biggest and most significant statistical relationship uh, between the weakness of, the the, um, reduction in the weakness of state strength and the reduction in perceived uh, threat. Now, some uh, caveats to this. Uh, So on, on, uh, asked in general, Uh, and uh, kind of formally about ethnic diversity and state strength, we see the reduction of weakness. But in some ways, uh, in terms of the views of the Chinese, informally, there is still a tremendous sense of uh, alienation. Um, One big change between 2014, that's Russian-wide surveys, uh, like whether you support, uh, whether you oppose Members of these ethnic groups marrying into your family—we've uh, seen actually an improvement on most groups. The, the opposition declined uh, to marriage, except Ukrainians because of the war. Uh, they became the enemy, unlike what Putin said that they're fraternal people. But the war made them look like less like less uh, desirable to to be married. But the Chinese stayed about the same. Doesn't matter. They're still one of the most disliked, other than the gypsies, they're the most unacceptable marriage partner for the Russians. (laughs) (laughs) Now, finally, what, what, um, and here we come to some of the effects of the situation in Ukraine. one big change in these nationwide Russian surveys was the assessment of economic performance of Russia and the respondents' own economic situation. And you can see very significant shift uh, from uh, kind of thinking, most people thinking it's about the same on the, you know, for the past year to actually the majority thinking it declined. The economic situation declined over the past year. And this is where um, the challenge lies, because with the decline of economic situation, you can see the decline in perceived state strength. You can see, again, the rise of animosities. You can see, again, the same feeds into the policy world that are going to undermine potential uh, fruitful uh, relations, economic relations, cross-border relations, trade, etc., between the Russian Far East and China. And perhaps the Russian policy makers could take it into account uh, and think that the Western economic sanctions uh, against Ukraine uh, are not only going to affect the cronies of the regime, but also have broader implications longer term and prevent Russia from, yield, uh, from reaping uh, benefits in the area where they want to do it to break the Western sanction front that is in Asia. So with these cheerful thoughts, <laughs> I say thank you for your attention. Thank
2: you very much. Uh, I'm just going to start things off then with a question for uh, all three of our speakers. I didn't hear much alarmism today. And with uh, the title of today's presentation, uh, pivot uh, implying russian chinese collaboration against uh, american power Uh, there was the opportunity to have fireworks and if you go to think tanks in dc where they discuss the same issues you hear a lot of alarmism right and threat mongering russia and china are going to team up and take on the us and then you see statistics where they pool the resources of the two countries with you know russia trying to have the combined gdp of so and so and the combined uh, population and the combined military capacity of such a very large number, which should be very frightening, right, to Americans. Uh, and this started about a decade ago, I think, um, when Putin's foreign policy turned a bit and Russia and China together uh, started pushing back against American non-governmental organizations and then the Shanghai Cooperation Organization was created. So you heard a lot of this largest rhetoric uh, starting back then, but not so much today and, and not uh, among... You guys, so uh, why don't you uh, give me your sense of what, whether this rhetoric was always uh, hyped and, and uh, overblown, whether there was something to it before but now things have changed, or uh, whether um, now R- Russia and China are gonna have a war and the US can, can sit back and watch. <laughs> and feel free to take that in, uh, in any order, and, and please uh, speak from there because we don't have a microphone.
1: Um, well, I, I'm not exa- answering exactly the question you've asked about Russia and China having a war, but it seems to me Russia and China face very similar problems right now. I mean, China, the the driver of China is is markets, and Russian state-owned the, the Russian state-owned enterprises that are subsidized have all the subsidies from the government have rates of return of two and a half percent, and the market sector that's. You know, exporting is export-led and, and is um, located in the coastal provinces, it has a rate of return of 35 percent. So China, China's primary problems are domestic problems. Can they, you know, can they gradually move, liberalize and get the benefits of markets or are, they all, are all their local government, um, is all their local government borrowing going to collapse? Um, Russia has a similar kind of problem um, right now with the their, their basic resource base is so strong and so promising, and yet the institutional environment, the sistema, is so corrupt and so, um, that the regulations are so um, centralized that it's very hard to get anyone to come in. The risk premium is enormous. So in that sense, both Russia and and China faced enormous domestic problems and in that sense you know their problems aren't with aren't with Germany or the US and the US represents liberal market liberalization and and unless they go that route they're going to to be um, stagnant yeah. so that's a different you know answering a different question I would say that the
0: alarmism reflects the, the fact that we understated the importance of a Sino-Russian partnership before. And all of a sudden, we're waking up to it uh, a few years later. I think there was a tendency to, to focus excessively, perhaps, on the differences, and to talk about an access of convenience and so on, and not see the points of agreement. And so now, when they're highlighted, Washington is surprised. I, I think that's part of it. Um, are we going to see some kind of an axis against U.S. interests? I think there still are differences between Russia and China, so they're not always on the same page. Um, top, popular perceptions, I think, are important on, on both sides. But um, but I think Judy is right to point out that, that they have their weaknesses, and especially our understanding of China, I think, is very skewed to focus on economic indicators to the exclusion of many constraints on Chinese power, like a scarcity of water that's, that's very serious in China, China's dependence on commodity markets, on food markets, and all of these other pressures that China confronts. And so I don't know that, that it's an it's a impenetrable block that we're facing at the present time.
3: Well, you know, uh, I'll give two insights from my empirical work on Chinese migration and the Russian Paris to add to that specific debate that you mentioned in the question. The first one is the threats is all, threat is always exaggerated. So when there is, it, it's not the, the reality of threat but the possibility that it <coughs> that's sorry, that raises that shadow of the future, and I think that's what you witness in these debates in Washington, D.C., or in these kinds of arguments. Um, for example, in my surveys, uh, the uh, uh, assessment of migration scale of the Chinese into the Russian parties has always been at least exaggerated ten times, tenfold. Twenty percent in 2013, 40 percent, they said, of the local population are migrants. In reality, maybe maximum four percent. You know, so. Uh, But the second lesson is more specific to the nature of Russia-China relations, and that's what I observed by looking at the emergence of the cross-border trade complexes on on the Russian-Chinese border. Beautiful idea at the beginning to have that kind of visa-free zone where traders and others, uh, participants who want to, scholars or others, can go into this area and interact uh, with people from the other side. Buy, sell, learn, study, you know, uh, and then go back. So, so you would create uh, these kinds of trade economic zones. And the Chinese approached it from the very pragmatic economic standpoint. They immediately developed trade facilities, transportation routes. There's a huge Holiday Inn and Safe Wind Heritage Walks a lot of holiday inns in in the state of Washington, and it looks beautiful, you know. Uh, on the Russian side, they immediately built a huge perimeter fence, uh, <laughs> a wooden Russian Orthodox church, and stalled, you know that. And then they enlarged uh, the uh, width of uh, the area called border zone, so to get to that visa-free area, you would have to get a permit from the FSB to cross into the 30-kilometer border zone first, so there goes your free trade. And I think what we see now is the temporary coincidence of China's commercial economic interest and Russia's geopolitical interest, but that is not, in my view, a solid basis for even fruitful economic cooperation in the future, not to mention security, alliance, and warfighting. No alarm isn't today. (laughs) Uh,
2: We have until uh, about 7.30, so uh, questions from the audience. Um, Yeah, I had a question, um, mostly to Judith Thornton about um, TPP as a, Way to kind of um, rebalance to um, in light of, of China's rise. Um, I thought that was a very interesting point, and I haven't heard it before. That um, the lack of international interference on Ukraine and the fact you know that Russia is able to do what they do allows China to look more seriously at the South China Sea and East China Sea territorial claims, and you know not have any sort of um, fallback on that. And I, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little more on. Um, the type of uh, strategies the U.S. and the international community could make.
1: Um, well, okay, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, international trade is giving countries access to a lot of alternatives, you know, other than China, and in that respect, that's a very desirable thing to happen. Um, in the case of the, of Northeast Asia, um, a, a a wonderful development for all the population of Northeast Asia would be if Japan and South Korea could. Managed to get their, you know, get their economic interests harmonized so that they could get beyond, you know, the history of Japan occupying South Korea. So in that respect, um, access to alternatives takes an awful lot of pressure off of relationships, reduces the fear that that one country is going to dominate. And in that respect, I see it as a very, very desirable development. Um, just to follow up on what Mikhail was saying on on Chinese involvement of Chinese cross-border activities, there are tens of thousands of Chinese farmers coming across the border. They, they have leased, they leased land in, in Amur, in the Jewish Autonomous Republic, in Khabarov, and for three to 10 years. And they come across the border every spring, and they plant, and they live on the land. And then they harvest the soy. They take the soy back to China, and they process it. Um, and this is a, the interesting element of that is the the, the setup was, has been, was set up by the bureaucracies, the regional bureaucrats. And the regional, instead of turning the land, making the land available to, to the Russian, Russian farmers, they kept the land in the hands of the regional um, bureaucracy and they leased it out to somebody who couldn't possibly end up owning it. So in that respect, the bureaucracies have set up these arrangements that are giving them big rents, you know, at the expense of, of the poor Chinese fa- peasants. So in a sense, everybody's ga- gaining, but but Russia really has the upper hand in all of that, or at least that's you know that's the perception of of the people I've talked with in Amur. <coughs>
4: So, you know, one of the things, economically, that's been interesting in the last few years is the development of this new bank. Uh, So and in the rhetoric that comes along with it, uh, they talk about working around the World Bank, working around IMF, working around Western sanctions, working around various things. Now, that's a bank that apparently India, China, Russia, and so forth are involved in. So there must be some fairly thick uh, business relationships between whoever the forces are, and that's just their oligarchs, you know, making deals. Uh, their London, their Wall Street, wherever. Or, in fact, is it a... And it seems to me that it is. Uh, if say in Siberia you have these great problems under capitalization, Chinese want the oil, they want the other resources. Uh, all of a sudden the capital becomes available, building railroads, stuff the Chinese like to do, but the Russians can sell out, you know, some resources in that in that direction. So I I haven't heard anything about that in this discussion, that there's kind of a global financial deal going, which operates at a different level, I think. It it seems to me that Ukraine and a lot of these issues are sort of sideshows, actually, for this uh, larger global issue. uh, I'm not looking at the alarmism side of it, but I'm looking at the certainly it's competitive. I guess that's really with what Bret Woods Institution. So can you respond at all to that? What's um, question? Well, I
1: mean the issue is is what which what what investment is going to profitable projects, you know, that will pay off, and what investment is totally subsidizing some, you know dead-end activity. I mean, and that was what killed the Soviet Union, the, the capital was going to black holes where it didn't pay off. So that's, you know, it's not the issue of is, are, is there a bank, but on what are the terms on which this is being borrowed and lent? For China right now, for their regional, the, the way that the, the Chinese central government has not been fun, funding their provinces, and the way the provinces tried to fund themselves was to transfer land Land adjoining urban areas, um, and building you know, housing and selling. The, about 30 percent of the profit from the sale of the housing went to the to the peasants who owned the land. About about 30 percent went to the builders, and then the regions um, took the rest. The provinces took the rest. And now China is in really big trouble because all of this lending. Is for projects that aren't paying off, and so China's got a huge, you know, huge debt that it that it can't possibly pay back. You know, so, so the issue is, you know, financial markets are great, if, but if they're moving capital to profitable activities, can I can I just
0: say something? I think that what you're pointing to, though, is the normative dimension of how this bank is challenging the way the Bretton Woods system was established, and I think that. This this um, thinking started after the economic crisis of two thousand eight. China was very critical, saying this shows the holes in the Western model, and and the thinking about these banks came about uh, as a as a challenge that so we can have a new system that wouldn't involve all these human rights standards that interfere in domestic politics and so on. And so I think that this. The idea of the bank was partly in response to that. But in light of the sanctions, I think there have been financial arrangements like ruble, yuan swaps that have helped prop up um, the ruble at, at a difficult time. Russians have been able to get Chinese credit cards to uh, finance themselves, which which undercuts the, the, the uh, sanctions further, that responding to the idea of what when you asked before, in terms of, is there some kind of new access? So I think that the, that there are financial supports that are coming into the system,
1: whether they're profitable. That, that's an important well, question. Then, the, then the, but there are also huge financial costs in China. In China has accumulated three point three point eight eight trillion dollars of foreign of foreign assets because they kept. They kept buying foreign, you know, they kept buying dollars, acquiring dollars and sterilizing them in order to keep <laughs> the, the price of the renminbi low. And they wanted to keep the price of the renminbi low so that their their coastal provinces could sell sell goods on the cheap. But the consequence, the domestic consequence of of acquiring all these four you know, spending all your money on foreign assets and then sterilizing them, is that investment became 55% of chinese national income the the household sector the consumption sector you know of the chinese population is around 40% so they just wiped out the well-being of their you know the potential well-being of their population in the process of trying to manage their you know their financial assets and and you know so there are there are pluses and minuses to what you do
2: great yeah, um, this is a
3: question for the entire panel, but particularly for Liz. Uh, you know, there have been, as much as there is a question of the China threat, there's also have been people who claim that China is about to experience a hard landing. Gordon Chang made a career of this. But this morning, David Chambau wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal um, saying that, quote, the endgame of the communist rule in China has begun, and Xi Jinping's ruthless measures are only bringing the country closer to a breaking point. Shambao is one of the most prominent China analysts in the US and has certainly fallen on the panda hugger, if you will, uh, side of the fence. Uh, Do you give any credence to this? And if so, uh, do you think that this uh, collapse of the Communist Party, what impact will it have on the geopolitics of Northeast Asia?
0: That's a small question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
3: uh,
0: I have great respect for David Shambao, and I agree. In his recent book, on, on China Goes Global, he talks about how China is, is, on the one hand, rising and insecure. He talks about the contradictions in China, and I think he's, he's right on the mark. Um, and, and for those of us who remember the, the days when no one expected the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think it's, it, it can be at least bad luck to expect the same thing for, for China never to change. But uh, the Chinese leaders have been investing a lot in political stability. I think a lot of their policies are designed for that. And, and so they're, try, they're trying to build a, a wall around all of these uh, different challenges, the f- great firewall, uh, restricting NGOs, um, and I think that's part of the the reason that drives them closer to Russia, which also sees a lot of these threats from the outside as the problem, rather than looking at the inside threats, which are probably more substantial. Um, I think it would be a cataclysmic shift if there was a leadership change in China, but I don't know that that's happening anytime soon. I think... People, what people are looking at are sources of instability in China, um, especially responses to uh, threats to food safety, to water availability, pollution—all of these issues that have led to increasing numbers of protests. But society has been also, Chinese society has been seeking out um, ways to maintain resilience in face of these challenges. Because they, there are so few avenues for legitimate protest that society has to take steps to try to manage these threats without taking political action. So I don't know. I, I didn't read that article this morning, so I don't know what David Shambaugh sees as the handwriting on the wall for the demise of the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. I certainly think that... that Within the Chinese leadership, there's a sense of threat, and that's why the the current leadership is trying to restrict outside pressures to the
1: extent that they they are doing.
2: Vince Colucci.
4: I have a question I appreciate all of you addressing. I I specialize in, in the Arctic, the Arctic Ocean, the Arctic Council, And in particular, the side that has Shahutka and the the Russian side and its relationships with the Canadian and the American parts of the Arctic. So, the the question I would actually, given the shortage of time, I just appreciate each of you commenting on whether you see connections between your interests and what's happening in the Arctic.
2: Another small question. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh,
0: well, I do in terms of energy partnerships. China has now um, secured an investment in the Arctic a gas investment, in Novatek. Um, but then, so has Vietnam is also involved there. India. So Russia is looking for partners in the Arctic. I think the sanctions are making it difficult to develop that part. And. China is eager to to be involved now, an observer of the Arctic Council. Permanent observer, right? And I think Asian countries, in general, I think I think Russia's reception in Asia improved prior to the Ukraine crisis because of the new possibilities in Arctic shipping, and so um, now the, the situation has shifted because of all the sanctions. And also some pessimism, I understand, in the possibilities of shipping because of a lot of uh, problems within the Arctic itself, the availability of icebreakers and other issues like that. But the Arctic is an area where Chinese experts see potential differences with Russia, because China, some Chinese have said that the Arctic is a common resource and uh, belongs to everyone, and Russia takes a strict view of sovereignty in that point. So Chinese observers are aware of these differences, and I think they're hoping maybe to leverage some investments to paper over these differences.
4: China now calls itself a near-Arctic nation. A near-Arctic
1: nation.
4: <laughs> We're all near-Arctic
1: <laughs>
4: uh, My question is, um, how are uh, the governments of uh, Russia and China responding to the withdrawal
2: from Afghanistan by the United States and NATO? Would anyone like to
3: take that question? Misha, we haven't heard from you in a while. Any ideas? I don't know. Actually, you know, know, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think, as everything, uh, you know, the perception is utilitarian how can we play it the best way to use it as a leverage uh, or to pursue other goals. And of course, the withdrawal was not one-time act. So uh, when uh, the withdrawal started, Russia allowed uh, the Ulyanovsk airport to be used uh, and provided even planes uh, to transport U.S. equipment and troops through the Russian t- territory uh, with the idea that, well, you know, um, even if we annex Crimea on issues like that, you may need us, and, and uh, I don't think there was any uh, desire to build some kind of partnership and cooperation there, but it was just a cold-blooded uh, calculation and typical with uh, Putin's perception of um, other people and nations, you know, use them to the best extent that you can use them, that's it.
1: I, I just have a comment. So, Russia must be feeling awfully insecure about the um, southern peoples, the Muslim southern peoples, um, who represent a challenge to Moscow. Um, and um, that's, you know, that's they've got they got a lot to worry about on their on their southeastern borders. Um, well, just on this point, the, the Russian—who are the troops? Who has Russia? Who are the Russian troops that Putin has sent to Ukraine? Sent, he, he sent them from Ulan Ude. He sent them Siberia. from Siberia, the, the Buryats,
3: yeah. and the Caucasus.
1: Well, maybe, yeah, but yeah. you know, he's really sensitive about you know the of the ethnic issues there.
3: I have, I, the the Buriats have the sent. Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And from the Euros. They're paid between two and $4,000 a month to
0: fight. Well, the, the Chinese, I think, have mixed feelings because, on the one hand, they saw the US presence in Afghanistan as pressure on their western border. Xinjiang, which is their sensitive the Muslim areas, right adjacent to Afghanistan, on the other hand, now that the U.S. is leaving, they're concerned more about Islamic terrorism. There be more terror, so-called terrorist actions in Xinjiang. And so that's a security threat to to China. China's oil and gas industry is centered in Xinjiang. And they, previously, Afghanistan was seen more as an economic opportunity investments by the China a National Oil Company in Afghanistan, a big mining investment. Now they're starting to get concerned about security, and they don't, they're not likely to, to send their own troops to Afghanistan to, to secure their
2: investment. so it's a big concern. Okay, we're gonna end while the night is still young. I apologize if we didn't get to your question. The speakers might have some time after. Before we close, I'd like to um, thank the East Asia Center, the Jackson Global National Studies, uh, for sponsoring this, along with us, the Ellison Center. We're also um, on the web and uh, Facebook and Twitter. Please look us up if you wanna find out about future events. Let's again thank our panelists, and thank you all for coming.